Good morning. I'm not used to doing church at 8.15 in the morning. This is an early time, but it is great to be here, and I've appreciated so much the incredible uh, warmth and hospitality of the Sunset Church of Christ here in Springfield. Thank you for being so welcoming and thoroughly enjoyed last night and all that, all those that were here, and uh, I'm sure today will be no, no different. Really appreciate the, the ministry staff here, and uh, you've got some incredible uh, ministers working as part of this congregation, and wonderful elders and uh, deacons and others that do an amazing job, and I know that this is uh, challenging times. As a, a preacher and an elder myself, I know it's challenging times to within uh, churches as we're, we're trying to keep keep the doors open and keep things rolling, but uh, COVID and all the, the issues around that can make it challenging. So I just want to commend you for being present today, and I know there's several that would be live streaming, and we want to welcome them as well. Take your Bible and open up to Psalm 31, Psalm 31. I love the 31st Psalm because it is real, because it addresses some issues that uh, we often maybe avoid and, and don't, don't want to speak about. Starting out in Psalm 31 and verse 9 and 10, in a moment we'll uh, be looking at this, and so I'm just going to ask you to hold on, on to it, and we're going to get there in, in just, just a second. But let me preface this, uh, this text by talking about this, and it will fit into what we're about to, to say. You know what a labyrinth is? A, uh, like a maze? This particular maze, this particular labyrinth, is one that's found in Cincinnati, Ohio, I've been there and enjoyed um, trying to figure out the, the labyrinth. But while I was there back uh, last spring, I looked around and there were several families. There was a beautiful uh, day, I believe it was a Friday and uh, evening. And there were young families with little children. And as the, the kids were, I like the way the kids do the labyrinth because they just kind of climb over the hedges. They, they ignore, they ignore the the way you're supposed to do it, and uh, they don't abide by the same rules that, that maybe us older, old fogies would abide by. But I, as I was watching these, these children and these families and thought, you know, th this, is, this is really fun and, and they're having a good time, but something dawned on me. What dawned on me is that there are many people in this world and many people within the church that are in, in a different type of labyrinth. And it's not fun and games. It's an emotional labyrinth. It's a spiritual labyrinth. They don't know how they got to where they are today. They don't know exactly why they are feeling what they're feeling emotionally and spiritually. But they discover that there seems to be no way out. And every, every turn that they make seems to be a false turn with a dead end. And there's, there's no exit signs on how to get out of this spot that they are. And they, they look back to a day 
when things were good, when their life was, was happier and they, they, their mood was, was up and, and they felt better. And they longed for those days, but those days seemed to be locked behind an iron gate, an impenetrable gate. And they're wondering, how can I find the key to, the, to this gate to get back to the, the good old days when I felt and experienced life in a different way, but now I'm stuck in this labyrinth. The psalmist taps into that for us as he says this, Be gracious to me, O God, for I am in distress, my eyes wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Verse 12, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I become like a broken vessel. David, a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, went through periods in his life that Man, was he struggling with his emotionality. There were times that it was sin-related, as in Bathsheba and Uriah. There were other times, though, that it wasn't his fault, and he was being chased down by a megalomaniac king by the name of Saul. And there were people accusing David of things. Even his wife, Michael, was giving David a hard time because of his faith and his expression of joy in bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But David had his ups and downs, and I, I relate so much to David, not that I'm anything like David was, but just his realness, his rawness in the things that he writes. The 42nd Psalm is not by David. Many people think it is, but it, it's not. And this psalm is a beautiful psalm. It starts out with the, the song we sing, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. And we sing that beautiful song, and we don't really realize the context of that psalm. Because you read on in verse 3, and following says this, My tears have been my food day and night. And then verse 5 says, Why so downcast, O my soul? Why you are in turmoil within me, hoping God? I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. And so this psalmist is struggling. This son of Korah who wrote this is struggling. And maybe doesn't know exactly why, but he longs for the good old days. He's longing for that time that he felt connected to God's people and connected, more connected even to God. But his faith is still there. And verse 7 and 8 continues and says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, at your breakers and your waves. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So despite his situation, despite his circumstances, despite his feelings, he knows that God is, He's still there, that God still loves him. God is still helping him. A blue storm is raging in our country. COVID has escalated this blue storm. The blue storm I'm talking about is 
depression. Depression hurts deeply. It's real. It's not just a figment of our imagination. It is often connected to our neurochemistry. It's a medical disorder. There's different shades of the blue, I understand. We talked about this last night. There's a, a wide spectrum. So we've got the, just the, the typical everyday bouts of the blues, the ups and downs that every one of us has. And then on the far end of the spectrum, we've got the chronic mental health disorder that many believers struggle through day in and day out. And I'm imagining, I'm imagining that this morning there's some people sitting here and there's some people live streaming in that are right in the middle of it, in the middle of this blue storm. And you feel like you're drowning in this, this despair that can often come with depression. And you're wondering, where is my God? And what is, what is wrong with me? And emotionally and even physically, we have symptoms and many people struggle. And they might be sitting beside you or in the row nearby you here in the auditorium this morning. Just some stats, I shared some of these last night, but over 18 million adults, one in 10 in the U.S. in a given year on a global scale, more than 350 million people of all ages suffer from depression. And women are twice as likely as men to deal with depression. About 10% of all women in the United States have some sort of depression diagnosis, and about 5% of all men. By the way, do you know why twice as many women as men deal with depression? It's because women have to live with men. <laughs> that is why. And there might be a little bit more truth to that than we want to acknowledge. I'm glad you got a sense of humor, and that would have been bad if you hadn't laughed. But so many times the, the, the way into counseling is through marriage counseling. And many times through marriage counseling I see depression lifted because of the, some of the interpersonal struggles that are there. It's a leading cause of disability for age 15 through 54 or 44. Diagnoses are rising the fastest among those under the age of 35 or millennials. And they've increased 47% in this group um, in millennials since 2013. Among youth, the rate has risen 63% since 2013. 47% for boys, 65% for girls. Some of that might be skewed because kids are more likely to step forward these days. There's less of a stigma talking about it. But nearly one in five kids, twice as many girls, again, as boys are dealing with it. And as I think about our families, how many of you are a parent? Raise your hand if you're a parent. All right. Keep your hand raised, your hand raised if you're a grandparent. Several, any great-grandparents in here? All right, wow. Y'all are living right in, in Springfield. Several great-grandparents. Not, about nothing hurts a parent's heart or a grandparent or great-grandparent's heart more than to see their child suffering. We would do about anything we could to take their suffering off them and even put it on ourselves. And so families are hurting when we see our kids hurting. Suicide's the third leading cause of death among adolescents. A lot of Young people in high school, especially ninth and 10th grade, earlier in high school, which is a bit tougher for many than as they get used to high school and the pressures that are there. But leading cause of death, second 
third leading cause of death and the second leading cause of death for college-aged young people. This is a reason why about every uh, 13 minutes someone takes their life from suicide, about 41,000 people per year. Depression is a neurochemical imbalance on the, the chronic side of it. It's a medical condition, a disease or a mood disorder resulting from an altered brain structure. I like to describe it like this. It's like having a circuitry board, and some of the circuits have blown on the circuit board. Some of the circuits in the brain are not working properly, and serotonin, which is a, a feel-good type chemical naturally created, is not as readily available, and that's why SSRI type of um, medicines are, are helpful to help bring an imbalanced brain back into balance, to function properly. That is my wife and I on our 30th wedding anniversary. That's pre-COVID because we weren't wearing masks. By the way, we take off our masks when we kiss, just so you know. Um, we tried it the other way, it just didn't work too well. But on this particular trip, um, we were celebrating, and that, that lady up there, that beautiful lady, Missy, she's an incredibly talented woman. She's a passionate woman. She is a Christian woman. And she's put up with me all these years, so I know she's a good woman. But when we first started dating back in the 80s, in the days of good rock music and Van Halen, we knew that uh, we were just, just in, in love, just in love with each other. But it wasn't too long into our first year of marriage or so that Missy started having some physical symptoms, and long story short, after a biopsy, it was discovered that she had an incurable kidney disease. And uh, this kidney disease was going to just progress. And um, at that time, actually, the, the nephrologist said that typically with this disease, this is an old person disease. She was just 20 years old at the time. Though. They said within eight years, her kidneys will fail. Well, she, through eating healthy and through some other ways, far extended that, and we were thankful for that. But as time, time went on, there was a need for more and more medications. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Fast forward to about 2005. 2005, our young son, Austin, who is now 19 years old, but he was at the time four years old. It was in the summer, and uh, my wife and kids had just come back from Kansas. My wife is from Independence, Kansas. So we were working with the church in North Texas, and they came back, and Austin, all over his body, had these little uh, fingerprint bruises. And so we were trying to figure out why did he have these fingerprint bruises. His grandfather had been tickling him, but very innocently. And so we thought, well, maybe it's an iron deficiency or something like that. And so we decided to take him to the doctor on Monday morning. The VBS was starting Monday morning, and Missy took him to the doctor, brought him onto VBS, but the doctor said, look, it's probably nothing, but come back after VBS and um, we'll do some blood work. And so we did that and took him to the hospital and did the blood work. 
And they said it would be a couple of hours. So I went back to my church office, Missy went to the house, and about an hour later, Missy called me. And on the phone, she was blubbering and crying, and I couldn't make out really what she was saying, but I could pick out two words. The one word was Austin, which is our son, Austin, and the second word was leukemia. My world went into slow motion, right? And everything that I had going on just was inconsequential. I got out of the office as quick as I can, peeled out of my truck, and driving back home to our parsonage outside the city limits. And as I was about to cross over the, the uh, railroad tracks, I remember just hyperventilating because I could not breathe. I could just not catch my breath. Got to the house and running in through the garage, and Missy is in the living room, and she's, Missy is on, in the fetal position in our uh, recliner and just absolutely broken. And through her tears, she said, Dr. Parkey called and something about his blood count, I don't understand, but he says it looks like it's leukemia, cancer. About that time, the phone rings, it's Dr. Parkey, and a great general practitioner there in a, a small town, and he said, look, Ryan, he did his blood work, his ANC, basically his white count, is a, a hundred and, about 169,000 supposed to be between 5,000 and 12,000. He said, the only thing that can really explain that is, is leukemia. He said, uh, get your bags packed, head to Fort Worth immediately. They're, they're waiting on your family. I've called ahead, a cook children's going through the ER. They're, they're going to take you right to a room. They're, they're ready for you. So we try to collect up Austin. He doesn't know what's going on. He's still kind of, you know, he's oblivious. And Olivia who's two years older, get in our van, head to, to down to Fort Worth. By the time we get there and the oncologist and hematologist there do some blood work, his blood count has gone up to 215,000, his white count. They say, we've got to start chemo now because his organs are about to start shutting down. As a parent, what do you do? They say, we want you to sign on this line right here and we're going to put basically, we're going to put poison into his body to attack this, this cancer. So either that or he dies. Anyway, for the next three months, we lived at the Ronald McDonald House. Um, constant chemo through that year. I'm going to fast forward. I'm just going to, I'm going to come back to Missy. All the stress on a mama, all right, going through this. At the end of that year, I get hired to move from Texas. We'd been in the Texas area for about 12 years. Then I moved to Frieda Hardeman. I'm going to teach there. Get the job at Frieda Hardeman. Two weeks before we were about to move, Missy's mother passes away unexpectedly. And at the same time, Missy's kidneys are failing. I'm giving her shots once a month that cost us $1,500 out of pocket because insurance are not covering the shots just to help with her anemia. So Missy's going through all that, just loss after loss after loss. We get to uh, Tennessee, and when we get to Tennessee, within a year, Missy's kidneys are actively going into failure. They're at 17%. The, the doctors up at Vanderbilt say she's got to do a kidney transplant. And if she doesn't uh, do this transplant right now, 
she's going to have to go on dialysis, but we'd rather do the transplant prior to dialysis. So we find a match, a guy called Stephen Yakeley, who's actually a minister at College Church of Christ in Searcy now, friend of mine, perfect kidney match. On the door of Missy's hospital room, she had made the sign before, because she's an educator, so she had this poster she had made before going into the hospital, and the sign simply said this, I am weak, but he is strong. She wasn't talking about this guy. She was talking about that guy. Because when we're weak, he is strong. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, His strength is made perfect in my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so I could hear the nurses at the nursing station talking about this and just, they were just so impressed with Missy's faith. Fast forward a year later, Missy develops cancer herself. By the way, at the hospital, when she's in the hospital at Vanderbilt, our son at the same time was at St. Jude getting chemo on the same day. She's at Vanderbilt. He's at St. Jude. He was like six years old at the time. My brother had to take him down to St. Jude because I couldn't be in two places at the same time. A year later, Missy develops endometrial cancer. She's got to have cancer surgery and, and go through all that treatment. Thing after thing after thing, just knocking her down, knocking her down, knocking her down and down and down emotionally. And to top it all off, depression ran in her family. And so one day she goes to her great doctor up in, in, uh, at Vanderbilt, Dr. Heidi Schaefer. She says, Heidi, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have a husband that loves me. I've got a new kidney. I've got children that adore me. I've got a good job as a, a school counselor. But I'm struggling to get up in the morning. I, I'm str- I just feel so low all the time. And then she confesses like she confessed to me. I've stopped buckling my seatbelt when I drive. I buckle the kids in, but I don't buckle myself in. Because I just, I hope that I'll, I'll just crash my car and that I'll, I'll die. I don't want to actively kill myself, but I, don't, I just don't want to live anymore. Heidi Schaefer, Dr. Schaefer said, Missy, you've got major depressive disorder. Happens to a lot of people that go through a transplant and cancer like you have. This is something that we need to treat medically and through counseling. And so that's my inroad into depression, okay? Missy's not cured of depression. She's, she deals with it every day, different levels, and we'll talk about that. Some of you sitting out there this morning, I see your heads nodding because you relate to that story. You've seen things happen in your family or to close friends within the church, and you know that it's a real struggle. And so we know that there are some different shades of the blue. Together, Missy and I developed this color code. So she wears different types of color bracelets. So I know what sort of day she's having, and I'm going to describe these for you. There's a sunshine yellow day, a sky blue, violet blue, and dark indigo. A sunshine yellow day is a great day. It's a great day. You feel like you can keep up with your daily responsibilities and still have room to smile. You may even 
take on a creative task or you're grateful to, to see God more clearly that day and you feel lighter inside. And the verse that comes to our minds, Missy and mine, is, is Psalm 118, 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a great day. And there's a sky blue day. A sky blue day is a manageable day. Though you might sense the shadow of depression lurking close by, it's still a day that you can function for your family. Missy can go to work. She can get up and accomplish tasks and, and be there for work and for, for us. And we think about Nehemiah 8.10. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then there's a violet blue day. A violet blue day is a hard day. It's a day that Missy or you, you're feeling blue and you don't even know why. Maybe your body's starting to ache. It's a little harder to get out of bed. It's a little harder to get dressed or even walk down to the mailbox and pick up the mail. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then there's a dark indigo day. Dark indigo is the, about the darkest color of blue. It's kind of like midnight blue, but it's, it's a darker shade of blue before everything turns black. And on a dark indigo day, life is extremely difficult. It's, it's an impossible day. It feels like it. Everything hurts. Your body, your mind, your relationships. Simple tasks feel insurmountable. You're overwhelmed with sadness and hopelessness. But Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Amen? Been there? I used to believe something that I don't believe anymore. I was raised all my life believing that God never gives you more than you can handle. The Bible does not teach that, by the way. The closest it comes to that is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, The Lord won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but with every temptation will provide a way of escape. But that says nothing about testing. Testing and temptation are two different things. And there have been times in my life and there have been times in my, wife, my wife's life that we could not handle what we were going through. We were on our face, lying before God, crying out to God, saying, rescue us, God. When we couldn't handle it, when you can't handle it, you've got to trust in God to handle it for you. Because that's the only thing you can do. And these shades of blue cycle, thank God, there are better days that, that come, and you've got to hang in there. I had somebody once tell me, when, when you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot in the end of your rope and hang on for dear life. Just hang on for dear life. Because better days will come and get the help that you need. But believers often feel so guilty and feel so less than. They feel so ashamed of their depression. They feel that there must be something inherently wrong with them, for, even from a spiritual perspective. That maybe they've done some grievous sin or that God is punishing them in some way or that God has abandoned them, and they say, if only I was stronger, if only I was better, if only I was 
a better Christian, I wouldn't be struggling like this. And that is the accuser, the devil, getting in our heads, trying to drown us in a sea of despair. But depression is not a symptom of faithlessness. It's a medical disorder. And we've been talking about that. Proverbs 17, 12 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a dry spirit crushes, dries up the bones. A crushed spirit dries up the bones. I've come up with three distinct, distinct strategies. The three R's. The first is to recognize God's abiding presence. The second is to reach out to others to reconnect and to serve. And the third is to respect your limitations. Again, recognize God's abiding presence, reach out to others, and respect your limitations. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, and I'm going to forget to do this, so I'm going to save this right now. My son who had cancer, again, he's 19, he got through it, he's clean, 12 years clean. My wife is still going from day to day with depression and kidney-related issues, but she's hanging in there. But we think about 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. In Paul's way of thinking, suffering, suffering in all of its many forms, including mental health suffering, produces an increased sensitivity to the needs of others. It builds up a capacity for deeper compassion and for spiritual care and comfort. My wife, because of her struggle, not in spite of her struggle, but through her struggle, It has sensitized her to the struggles of others. And as she's in her school setting as a school counselor, she taps into the faculty and the the staff and the students and their pain. By the way, when I go to Dollar General and Missy's with me, we always seem to run into school kids at Dollar General. And I guess they have not gotten the memo of the, the social distancing rule. Because when they see Miss Missy, I'm not going to get between them because they run to her and they just hug on her leg as hard as they can because they know how much she cares about them. She's got a built-in radar, a built-in radar that she can just see people in a different way than most of us can, not in spite of her suffering but because of it. It has given her that comfort, that ability to pass on comfort, as Paul so beautifully says. One of the most effective strategies for coping with the blues in your own life is to shift your perspective by taking your eyes off yourself and turning your heart's attention to the needs of others. And to serve, it's a powerful, restorative antidote serving. A lot of times we don't think about it as such. It's also a spiritual discipline, serving. But it's a way that facilitates healing and health and hope. But in the process we've got to learn to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that implies self-love. So we've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to 
exercise proper preventative boundaries and know that we need to take care of ourselves so we can help others. Psalm 30 and verse 5, David said, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. This beautiful scripture is infused with thankfulness and hope and joy at the steadfast love of God. When I was a younger father, as I think about serving selflessly and as I think about being with with God and serving. And think about Matthew 20, 25, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And as I think about living victoriously, sometimes our idea of the victorious life or the overcoming life is something that we think is devoid of suffering. Well, life that is exempt from suffering, but the victorious life, the abundant life, is a life often filled with suffering. But it's a life also filled with joy, as James said. Count it all joy, my beloved brethren, when you endure all kinds of suffering. Because we realize that that suffering refines us. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. But as a younger father, I used to love taking my kids for walks and holding their hand down the old Texas path. We'd go down to the creek, go underneath the bridge, and just hang out together. They'd hold my hand, and I'd hold their hands as we were walking. Now that my daughter's 22 and my son is 19, and my son, by the way, is about 270 pounds. He's just a big guy. I'm not 270 pounds. I may look like I am, but I'm not. We'll sit in a restaurant. It's just him and I. Or sometimes just driving down the road. We'll still hold hands. Nothing weird about it. It's beautiful. We hold hands. And I think about how our God holds our hand through the valley of the shadow of death how he leads us, how he guides us. And sometimes we're afraid we're going to let go, but don't worry because he's not going to let go of you. Just like I wasn't about to let go of my kids' hands when they were little. God's not going to let go of your hand. I hope that something I've said this morning is encouraging and, and helpful to you. When we're hurt on the inside, God is there 24-7, 365 days out of the year. According to Psalm 56, verse 8, God records our tears. He saves them in a bottle. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. If we can help you this morning and the elders of this congregation can pray with you or the ministers can, can help bring you into a closer relationship with the Lord, if you've not yet been baptized into Christ and would like to name Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord and repent of sin, confess His name, be immersed for the remission of your sins or any other need this morning. Maybe you're just going through a tough time and you need encouragement and help. Why don't you come as together we stand and as we sing.